2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 9. So last time, Peter exposed false teachers that would come into the church. This whole letter, that's sort of the theme, is a warning and equipping about false teaching that would come into this group of believers. Remember, Peter wrote this uh, to a group of Christians that had been dispersed uh, from their homes around Asia Minor as a result of persecution. And so he is warning them. He's saying false prophets will come. They will have a greedy agenda. They're covetous. They'll come in and they'll bring destructive heresies. They'll bring in alternate doctrines, alternate versions of the truth, essentially to make merchandise out of them, to make money off of them. And they needed to watch out that they weren't led astray by such things. And those things are very captivating. When somebody comes in and brings doctrines that... Um, offer stuff and suggest that there's no need to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ, that's a very appealing false teaching. Remember last time uh, it said uh, that these false teachers, um, they deny the Lord that bought them. And essentially what we think that means is they deny the lordship that Christ has over their life. And so we likened that to the false teachings today where they would suggest, hey, have all the benefits of Christianity and get all this stuff, but there's no need to submit to Jesus' lordship. And, and that's possibly the, the false teaching that's going on. Although the book of First and Second Peter don't necessarily bring out blatantly what this false teaching was. It's not like first John or something where you get the idea that he's talking about a, you know, a Gnostic or at least a pre-Gnostic doctrine, but that's kind of what we get the ideas here because it said that they did this out of covetousness. So that's greed and that they denied the Lord that bought them. So it's, it's maybe some sort of, and I'm just saying maybe here, maybe some sort of version of like a prosperity gospel in a way it could be. Nonetheless, they're being warned about false teaching. Last time Peter exposed them. Now, the sad thing was last time, as he said, it says many would follow them. And that's just heartbreaking that many will go after false teaching. Now, this time Peter warns them by telling them that these ungodly people, they are condemned and they will face God's judgment. He then comforts them by assuring them of their deliverance from God's coming judgment. So they can continue in sound doctrine. They don't need to go the way of the false teachers. They don't need to be led astray by this, even though it might be captivating. They can be assured that God knows how to protect them living righteously, even though all this evil's all around them. And then a reminder that says, hey, these false teachers, these ungodly people, their destiny is judgment. And I think that's a good reminder for me today. I look at the world and I see that there's corruption all around and, and there are some pretty enticing things to lead us away from solid obedience, simple obedience to the Lord. There's some pretty captivating things out there. So I think it's a good reminder that says, look, you can follow Jesus. You can stick to the sound doctrine. You don't need to be distracted by this other stuff. Because remember, these ungodly people that may even seem like they're prospering now, their destiny is judgment. And that's where he's going this time. Second Peter chapter four, or chapter two, verse four, sorry. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, 
condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them, tormented uh, his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Father, as we look at this incredibly long sentence today, by the power of your spirit, Lord, make this book live to us. Show us who we are. Show us the purpose that your spirit has for this text today. Show us our savior in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Now you might be saying that's one long sentence. It is the longest sentence in the Bible. It's a, Peter's good at stringing them together, isn't he? You can kind of get a handle on it like this. Look at verse four. For if God did not spare, then go all the way to verse nine. Then the Lord knows how. You see what I mean? For if God didn't spare these people, well, then here's what you know. The Lord knows how to protect the righteous and to judge the wicked. And so all the rest of that's kind of filler and explanation. So the outline's kind of simple. Uh, three parts. The first one, he's going to show some judgment upon the ungodly. He's going to give historical examples of judgment, how God has judged the ungodly. Number two, then, deliverance of the righteous. And then number nine, that verse uh, essentially the main point, comfort to the believers. So number one, judgment upon the ungodly. First of all, in these historical examples of judgment, he talks about the angels. Look at verse four. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now, when it says, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned. The word if there is best understood as since. He's not saying if, like if it might happen. He's saying since, and we know that because these are historical examples of things that did happen. Now, what is he talking about, angels who sinned? There are at least three takes on this. The first one would be when Satan fell. Ezekiel 28, 15 says, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Talking about Lucifer. Till iniquity was found in you. That's Ezekiel 28, 15. Talking about the fall of Satan. He's a created being, Lucifer. He was an angel. He was, like it says right here, he's perfect in all his ways. Until rebellion was found in him. He rebelled against God. He said, remember in the book of Isaiah? He said, I will be like the most high. Remember the I will statements of uh, Lucifer there? Could mean that could mean the general falling when a third of the angels went with him. Could be talking about that. Revelation 12, verse 4, he, uh, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. That's talking about um, scholars believe, you know, interpreters believe that when Satan was cast down, that he brought a third of the angels with him. They became demons, fallen angels, dark uh, beings. Or here's the other uh, possibility. And it could be referring to these angels that Jude says in verse six, did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. And it says that God has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. 
there were some angels that Jude says didn't keep their proper abode and they came to earth and they did something that they were not supposed to do. Genesis chapter six, verses one through four. Let me read it to you. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. So what scholars believe is being talked about here is angels, fallen angels, mating with human women. It goes on to say, the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for yet he indeed is flesh and his days will be 120 years. Uh, that is Scholars believe what's talked about in Jude, these angels that did not keep their proper abode, they came to earth, these dark fallen angels, and they mated with human uh, women. Now, it's one of those three. Uh, when we get to heaven, we'll ask Peter, and, and he'll, uh, he'll give us the straight uh, story there. I lean towards the third one. You know, that's the one I would have to probably go with. I mean, Jude and Second Peter have very similar language in them. It seems like they're both kind of talking about the same thing. But he means one of those things, no doubt. And I will assure you that Peter knew exactly what he meant when he wrote that. Now, it says, but he cast them down to hell. This is a word from Greek mythology translated hell. It is the word Tartarus. Uh, it's not tartar sauce, in case you're wondering. It's Tartarus. And it's part of Hades or Sheol or the grave. It's been referred to as the hell hole of hell. And so what Peter is saying is these, God didn't even spare these angelic beings. These angelic beings fell. He's saying, you're worried about false teachers. He says, you think God won't judge them? God judged these angelic beings that fell. He will certainly judge ungodly humans. That's his point there. Now, look at this next example here, the ancient world, verse 5. Here's another historical example of God's judgment. And did not spare the ancient world. Now, what that's referring to is uh, the land, you know, the, the world before the flood. It's just, that's, that's the term that he's um, using to describe that. The judgment that the world at the time of Noah received, it sets the precedent for the judgment that is to come on the false teachers. Notice the conversation Peter's talking about false teachers. If God didn't spare these angels, if God didn't spare the ancient world, he'll certainly judge the ungodly. Now, maybe this is just an imagination here, so do what you want with it. But maybe what these false teachers were saying is, hey, there's no judgment coming. I think that's probably what's going on. And he says, hey, if God didn't, you think God's not going to judge you for this, for this ungodliness? He judged the angels and he judged the you know, pre-flood world. He said, but he saved Noah, one of eight people. Noah and his seven family members were spared out of the entire human race. Genesis 6, 18, God says this, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, your sons, wives with you. So God told Noah, essentially, look, people are off the chain. I'm going to flood everybody and kill them. So why don't you get into the ark, you and your family, and uh, I will save you. I'll protect the righteous while I judge the wicked. That's what he's getting there. God gave Noah directions to build an ark as the flood was coming. He built it and preached righteousness. He was preaching, you need to get right with God. He's telling people essentially, judgment is coming if you keep living like this. If you keep living business as usual, eating and drinking and married and all these physical, sensual sort of life. If you're just living life with no regard for God, he's like, judgment is coming upon you. 
That's what he was telling. And he did that for 120 years. Can you imagine that ministry? Now hiring pastor to come in and preach for 120 years and nobody will listen except for your own family, right? Hmm. <laughs> Genesis 7, 1, then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So there's the invitation to come into the ark. It says, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Okay, why did God do this, right? Let's talk about this for a second. Why did God, I mean, I know you grew up in Sunday school, you heard about Noah's ark and everything, but why did God flood the world? Well, Widespread corruption and violence. Genesis 6.11 says the earth was also corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So corruption and violence. Now, wickedness of humanity. Genesis 6.5, listen. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that, the, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intent of the thoughts of the person's heart, evil continually. Right? Another reason that God judged the world with the flood, the corruption of God's creation. Genesis 6.12 says, So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Genesis 6.4, we talked about the unholy union of the sons of God, whoever they might be, probably fallen, you know, angelic beings mating with human women. That was part of it. Genesis 6.6 also says, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Why? Because just the continuous evil. When it says God was sorry, it's just an anthropomorphism. It's a way of using human language to describe God. It's not that God was like, oh, I thought things were really going to work out and they didn't, you know, not at all. He knew exactly what was going to happen. But this action, this grievous sin is what brought upon the flood, what brought upon the destruction uh, of the world. So the main point really here is that the judgment that God is bringing upon the wicked ungodly is certain. Equally certain is his deliverance of those who are preachers of righteousness like Noah in his day. Now it's worth noticing here that only eight people were spared, right? The majority were living ungodly lives. Now we're talking, I don't scholars debate on how many people were on the earth. We're talking millions of people on the earth at this time, right? Worldwide flood. Eight people made it. Now, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, when Noah was preaching for 120 years and the majority of the earth was being disobedient to what he was saying and just kind of doing their own thing, it might have been very easy for people to have just said, dude, this guy's a whack job. He's building a boat uh, and he's talking about, you know, obeying this God. Look at what the rest of us are doing. I mean, if so many of us are doing this, it can't be that bad. I mean, look at the majority of us are being disobedient, right? The majority of us are just living life. We're just, we're, we're not doing anything wrong. We're just being concerned about getting married and having kids and having houses and just eating and drinking. There's nothing wrong with what we're doing. The majority of people are doing it. Well, Eight people made it through this. So this tells me that just because everybody's doing it doesn't mean that it's right. I remember when I was a foolish teenager, I used to use that excuse all the time. Well, everybody else is doing it. And then somebody would come back and what would they say after that? Well, if somebody's going to, if your buddy's going to jump off a bridge, would you do it? Yes. Genius at that point in life. Hey, look, if everybody's doing it, it doesn't matter. God... God is not 
okay with things just because a large amount of people do them. And also Noah preached for 120 years. So you think people might've been saying, look, if God was all that upset, he would have done something by now. Listen, just because God has not judged the sin yet, it doesn't mean that he's not going to. This is a very pointed application for anybody that's living in sin. If anybody reads the Bible, clearly says, God's telling me to do this, but I'm not doing it. Well, he must be okay with it because I'm you know, not getting judged for it. Listen, it's coming. Just because God hasn't already dealt with it, it doesn't mean that he's not going to deal with it, right? And that's, I think, what we learn from Noah. Never mistake God's patience for his permission. Never assume that because everybody seems to be living ungodly that it is God's approval. There are people, Matthew 7, 23, that will come to Jesus that says, hey, man, I was casting out demons. I was doing all these things. And then Jesus will say, look, depart from me. I never knew you. Um, you who practice lawlessness. Listen, I think we should stop for a second and just, and just talk about this for a second. This is one of the subjects that people don't like to discuss about Christianity in 2024. You know, they don't, like, they don't like all of God. They're like, just give me some of God. Give me some of his attributes. I don't want the other ones, right? But it's very real when you read the Bible that God is not only a God of love, God is love, but he's also a righteous judge. And he also punishes the wicked. And he's, it says that he's unhappy with the ungodly every day and he hates sin, that he will punish sin. We can tell, you say, well, how serious is sin to God? Well, you can tell by looking at the cross. You can say the sin must be serious because of the violent murder that his son voluntarily went to. Uh, he was judged. He drank the cup of God's wrath upon the cross. You could say, well, sin must be very serious. If nothing less than the blood of the sinless Savior was, was required to atone for it. It must be pretty serious. At that very same cross, you can also see that God is love. God was, he's so in love with us as his people, as, I mean, he so loves his creation that he was willing to die for us, but yet sin is so terrible that it took nothing less than the sinless blood of the Savior to atone for it. So you see both God's justice and mercy, his love and his righteousness meet at the cross. Now, if you're a Christian that likes to fall off the horse on one side or another, you're going to miss it. Those two things need to be held in tandem and in tension in the life of a Christian. And so a subject like this, talking about God's judgment, is very needed. When I hear about God's judgment and I hear about how serious sin is, it makes me very appreciative that God would condescend to me, a sinner, to put his love upon me and to put his life inside of me and to give me mercy when that's the last thing I ever deserved. God forbid in 2024 that we ever start to think that we're doing God a favor, that he's, you know, somehow indebted to us to, he has to do anything for us. He doesn't have to do anything for us. God could be perfectly righteous and perfectly just in just wiping out all of humanity like he did at the time of the flood. He could be perfectly just in doing that. But he doesn't because of his love. Sodom and Gomorrah, look at this next example. And turning... The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Brought a map so you can kind of tell where Sodom and Gomorrah are. It's not very helpful, but sort of. Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, Sodom, Gomorrah. So you get the idea, okay? 
Both these cities, it says, were covered with ashes. They were reduced to an ash heap. Peter cites this historical example again, proving that God will judge the ungodly. Here's an example of the two cities that were completely decimated by fire and brimstone. The apostle doesn't, in this letter, get into why Sodom was destroyed, but I think it's helpful and instructive to understand why uh, they, they were. Um, he does say one, he does give us one why. It says, notice what it says there, that it's an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So anybody that chooses an ungodly life should look at Sodom and Gomorrah and see that, you know, God doesn't play around with ungodliness. <clears throat> Why did God pour out his judgment and destruction on this huge group of people in these two, um, in the twin cities here? <clears throat> Well, widespread wickedness and sin, Genesis 18, 20, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave. So there, that gives us a reason. Genesis 19, one through five, let me read this to you. It says, now two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot, now Lot is Abraham's nephew. You guys know Abraham? You've been reading the book of Genesis through the Bible in one year. So you know Abraham, he had his nephew, his nephew's name's Lot. Two angels come to Sodom where Lot lives and they visit him in the evening. And uh, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. He bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, now, here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night. Come into my house, wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said to him, the angel said, no, Lot, but we will spend the night in the open square. Uh, but Lot insisted strongly. He said, no, no, it, they turn into my house. And so they did come into his house. Then he made him a feast. He baked unleavened bread. They ate. Now, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, and they said to him, where are the men that came to you tonight? You got this scene in your mind? Bring them out so we may know them carnally. So essentially the young men and the old men of Sodom wanted Lot to bring out his two guests so they could have sex with them. These men wanted to have sex with men. Later where you've heard the term sodomy, which essentially means having you know, anal sex with a man. That term came because of this city's name. The city's name, Sodom, means burnt or scorched. Later, this, the term sodomy became, uh, you know, synonymous with, with this because of their wicked sin. So their wickedness, their sin, their intent to commit homosexual activity was a big part of why God judged them. And just their overall grave sexual immorality, uh, Genesis 13, 13 says, Now the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Now, Deuteronomy 29, 23 gives us a clue too. It says, uh, the whole land is brimstone, salt, and burning. It is not sown, does not bear, does not any grass grow there. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. So he overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah in his anger and wrath. I want to make an aside here. We're talking about this movie last week called 1946 that suggests that God's not against homosexuality because the word homosexual didn't show up in the Bible until 1946. It's absolutely true that the English word homosexual did not show up in the Bible until 1946. However, the Bible from the book of Genesis has been condemning homosexuality. The, the book of Leviticus condemns homosexuality. When the, Greek Old when the Old Testament in Hebrew was translated into the Greek, uh, 
It uses specific Greek words to describe the act of bedding a male, which is homosexual activity. That Greek word used to translate the Old Testament concept into a book called the Septuagint is the same word that Paul uses to describe homosexuality. What's my point? God has condemned homosexual activity ever since the beginning of the Bible all the way through the end of the Bible. And so this movie, 1946, is absolute deception upon people that have no understanding of what the Bible says. So I feel obligated to put that out there. I know it's a little uncomfortable, but we have to decide what sort of people we're going to be. Are we going to be the people that take great comfort in the fact that God can preserve and will deliver the godly? Or are we going to be like those that go with the drift of false teaching in this world? We have to make that decision. I hope if you haven't settled that today, that today this is put right in your face that you make that decision before you leave here today. You make the decision of whose side you're going to be on. It doesn't mean that you're not loving to people. It doesn't mean that you're not kind to people. In fact, we're to quarrel with no people. We're to show humility to all men, the book of Titus, right? But we have to decide whose truth, my truth or God's truth or somebody else's truth. Which one am I going to that's exactly what Peter's warning about is this drift that comes, this pressure that comes upon Christians to turn from what the word of God says. So facing the ungodly pressure, these false teachers, Peter reminds his dear ones of the condemnation that these ungodly people are under. God's judgment and punishment is certain for the ungodly. There are three historical events here. The angels that sinned, the ancient world, and Sodom and Gomorrah. God sent an unmistakable message in these examples to all future generations that wickedness results in judgment. We have to understand that. That should fuel your evangelism. That should give you a sense of urgency to talk to people about the rescue that Jesus Christ offers. Now, Peter will encourage them with examples of God's deliverance. Look at verse seven, please. He says, then he delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Where it says he delivered righteous Lot. We're giving examples now of God's deliverance, but you might say, hey, wait a minute. There was an example of God's deliverance back in verse five. Noah, that's true. God did, uh, does, you know, he did deliver Noah, uh, but you know, you're trying to fit an outline. And, you know, so, so I don't like to always do that. You know, it's good, solid three points. But there was an example of deliverance back in verse five, Noah and his family. Here we see that righteous Lot was delivered. Now, just as God knows how to bring the judgment upon the ungodly, he knows how to preserve and deliver the righteous. Now, this is interesting, right? Lot's conduct described in Genesis 19. Who's all doing the through the Bible reading? Everybody. Yeah, so when you read Genesis 19, you, you, you read this and you think, that's kind of interesting that Peter's calling him righteous because his, his behavior was not always righteous, right? He's called righteous how many times in this passage? Three. Interesting when three words, it shows up three times in one verse. When someone is declared righteous in the Old Testament, it is by grace through faith, just like in the New Testament. Lot was righteous, as all the saved are, by faith in the true God. Righteousness was imputed to him by grace through faith, just as it was to his uncle Abraham. Genesis 15, 6. This is when Abraham was saved, if you like that term. It says, and he, Abraham, believed in the Lord 
and the Lord accounted it to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God's promise and that was accounted to him as righteousness. In other words, God looked at Abraham and said, is he righteous? Let me see. Oh, he believes my promise. So yeah, I'll call him righteous. Now, when God declares somebody righteous, does that mean that that person becomes sinless? <laughs> no, but it means God in his mercy and grace puts a label on you, puts a status on you that says righteous. So you look at me as if I'm righteous today, God? Yes, he does. Because he sees Jesus. He sees me in Christ. He sees you in Christ. So therefore, God sees us as righteous. And that's how God saw Lot. Even though Lot faltered and blundered and caved into lots of different pressures, even though he was drawn to a very wicked city because he probably thought he could prosper and make a lot of good money there. He didn't want to live in the city. Just give me a you know, house up on the hills here and I can go, I can still make money, you know. And he was drawn to all the prosperity, but yet he trusted and he knew who was, you know, Yahweh, who the true and living God was. And therefore, uh, God called him righteous. He had that righteous status stamped on him. And what Peter says about him here is he was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Let me put this before you today. This is a sign that somebody is righteous. Somebody knows, somebody knows the Lord. When they are oppressed by the conduct, the filthy, wicked conduct of the sinful world around them. That word oppressed right there, it means to be weighted down with toil. New King James has it oppressed. King James has it as vexed. Lot was weighted down with hard toil because of the immorality around him. The fact that he trusted in the true and living God is evidenced by the fact that he was bothered by the filthy conduct of the wicked. The fact that the child of God feels this way about the filthy conduct of the wicked is evidence that they are a child of God. Now today, there are many who name the name of Christ, but are not even phased by the filthy conduct of the world. In fact, many are entertained by it. I mean, we live in a world today that's completely saturated with filthy conduct, completely saturated. It's in the movies, it's in the music, it's on social media, it's uh, in the Instagram, it's the YouTube shorts, it's, I mean, it's on the TikTok, it's everywhere. It's on the billboards, it's in the books, it's in the magazines, it's in the school books. The filthy conduct of the wicked is everywhere. Now, it seems pretty hard to escape it. It's everywhere around us. Now, it's interesting because so many are so quick to make the point, like, I can't believe Peter called Lot righteous. Hey, at least Lot's vexed by the filthy conduct of the world around him. That's more than you can say for a lot of Christians today. You know, let me, I'll say something really hardcore. If, if, if God, you know, was to, to look through the things, you know, the movies, you know, and the music and the things that we're entertained by, would he find a people that's vexed by the filthy conduct of the world or would he find people that are entertained by it? In fact, we pay for it. God help us. He delivered righteous Lot. 
Let me show you how that happened in Genesis 18. I'm just going to summarize here the beginning of Genesis 18. It says, setting, uh, he, he brought in these divine visitors. This is how he delivered Lot. So um, a couple of angels, three angels go and they visit Abraham, right? And Sarah. And uh, you remember this? Abraham says, ah, come on over and we'll make some bread and, you know, cook up some dinner and all that stuff. And they come in and they have a good time. And, and, then, they, and then the angels say to Abraham, you're going to have a son. And Sarah's overhearing this because they're old, man. They haven't had a kid yet, right? And so uh, Sarah overhears this and she laughs inside. And then the angels come and they go, why'd you laugh? And I didn't laugh. You certainly did laugh. <laughs> and they called his name Isaac, which means laughter, right? Well, anyway, the angels, they take off from there. But at the end, you know, or at the, about the middle of chapter 18, they start alluding to, you know, we're going to go to Sodom and Gomorrah and we're going to judge the place. And then Abraham gets into this like intercession with them. And he says, oh, would you, you know, pour out judgment upon a city if there were 50 righteous in it? You guys remember this? No, I wouldn't if I found 50 righteous people. Oh, peradventure may I, you know, endeavor to speak to the Lord again, you know, and then he comes back 40, 30, 10. He goes all the way down. Good picture of intercession. Lord, would you pour out judgment upon this city, even if there were 10 righteous in it? No, if there were even 10 righteous there, I wouldn't find him. He's talking about Lot and he's talking about his family. I want you to hold on to that for a second. Would you pour out your judgment upon a city or upon a people if there were righteous people there? That's the whole premise of Abraham's argument, right? And the, and the answer is no, I wouldn't. I would not pour out my wrath upon the righteous. So the angels, they get up after that and they leave and they go to Sodom. Now, it's kind of an aside, but kind of not. When Abraham says, would you pour out your wrath upon the righteous as you would the, the wicked on the ungodly? And, and the implied answer is no, I wouldn't, right? This is a very strong verse to support a pre-tribulation rapture. God's nature and character is such that he would not pour out his wrath upon the righteous along with the wicked. So I won't, I won't say that this is proof of a pre-tribulation rapture, but I will say this is a text that strongly points in that direction, that this is the character of God. Now I say that, if you, for those of you who don't know what the tribulation is, it's a seven-year period of time coming that scholars believe that certain scholars will say, we'll call them conservative Bible interpretation scholars, believe that that is referring to what's known as Daniel's 70th week. It's also called a time of Jacob's trouble. It is a time when God, you've read the book of Revelation chapter, you know, like, what is it? You know, almost the whole book of Revelation chapter five, six through 19 deals with um, God pouring out all these, you know, the trumpets, the bowls, the seals, right? And all this wrath and this destruction. That is a period of time known as Jacob's trouble or known as the tribulation period. That is a time of God punishing the ungodly. So people look at this text and they say, God's character here is that he would not pour out his wrath on the righteous along with the ungodly. And they say, see, this kind of points towards a pre-tribulation rapture. There are other verses that I believe do as well. First Thessalonians 5 verses 9 says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that points in that direction. Revelation 3.10 
uh, letters to the churches. He says, because you've kept my commandments to preserve, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which is to come upon the whole world, believing that that's talking about the great tribulation period, that seven-year period known as Jacob's trouble. He says, um, I will keep you from the hour of trial. So the scholars believe hour of trial is referring to that period of time. I just point that out because in Abraham's intercession, that's what he appeals to. God, far be it from you that you would pour out your wrath and, and some kind of, you know, in a snarky way say, I just can't believe that God would beat up his bride. And, and I tend to align with that as well. You know, I, I don't think that God would beat up the church with his, uh, you know, judgment that's designed for to be Jacob's trouble. So that's where I lean. This is a, I teach the pre-tribulation rapture because I believe that there. So if you're trying to work through these things and study these things, you kind of have some framework in, in how that looks. Now, the angels, so back to, back to our story, uh, the angels warn Lot to leave. The, the angels, uh, they, they tell Lot, you got to evacuate with your family from the city. I mean, there's a destruction coming. And it's funny that, you know, Lot lingers, it says Lot lingers around. You know, I mean, God's angels come and tell you, I'm going to destroy your city, but you're so drawn to the place that you, I don't know. And you're lingering and you're hanging around. I just think of God's mercy in this too, because it says God knows how to deliver the righteous. I mean, even if they go kicking and screaming, right? Even if they linger, I mean, he's still like, come on, come on. Like God's pleading with them, escape the wrath to come. I mean, come on. Listen, he might be doing that with you today. If you're outside of Christ here and you're, you're an unbeliever and you're rejecting Jesus Christ, trust me, God is pleading with you saying, avoid the wrath to come. It's coming. But he's done everything that he's going to do for you in Jesus Christ. He's done everything that he's going to do. Now he's going to draw you unto him. And so you can be saved and escape the wrath to come. If you're outside of Christ here, that's a message for you. Now, Lot, he says, oh, just send me to the hills. I want to move out to the suburbs. You know, that way. Well, and so the angel says, fine, that's, that sounds okay. Sends him out there. Um, but you don't want to be like Lot's wife, right? Because you know what happened to her on their way out of the city. Lot's wife, she says, oh, I, I, th I want all my stuff. I forgot my stuff back there. And bam, gets turned into a pillar of salt. And, uh, you know, she, uh, she reminds me of Pilgrim's Progress, Christian and Christiana, you know, like he's got to go, you know, and she's like, I don't know. And so that can be really tough in a marriage when uh, somebody's trying to listen to the Lord and the other one's lusting after the things of the world. Now, Sodom is destroyed. Um, talks about that in Genesis uh, 18 as well, Genesis 19. So Lot was delivered based on his righteousness. So here's the point. God is going to bring judgment upon the ungodly, most certainly. So don't be enticed by them. Don't be enticed by their false teachings. Don't be enticed by their uh, Christless Christianity. Don't be enticed by their ways to have all the blessing but no cross in your life. Don't, don't be enticed by that because their end is destruction, these people. You look on TV and you see guys like Kenneth Copeland saying, bring the money to me. And you say, God, what? How do you not strike this guy with lightning? Well, it's coming. <laughs> you know, It's coming for him and others like him. But he can also deliver he can also deliver the righteous. And so your deliverance is sure and it's coming. And so even if you're like Lot, I mean, he went, God sure did a lot to get him. He, he did a lot to get Lot. Oh my goodness. Here's the last point. Comfort to believers. Look at verse nine. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Temptations there, testings. 
Not only does God know how to deliver us from the judgment to come, which he has done if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, he also knows how to deliver you out of the tests and the trials that are happening in your life even today. Maybe the way that he's delivering you from the test that you're in today is he's taking you through it, not just pulling you out of it. But God knows how to bring you through tests and temptations in life. I love it where it says there, then God knows. You know what? I sleep pretty well at night because it says, then God knows. The Lord knows. Uh, Adam, you know, what are you going to do to manage your life? Well, I don't know, but the Lord knows. You know, don't you have some sort of plan and everything all figured out and all this? No, you know what? The Lord knows. Hey, okay, cool. It's not saying it's bad to plan. But at the end of the day, I sleep well because I know the Lord knows. He knows how to deliver me. Good truth, isn't it? He says to reserve the unjust. That's the lake of fire. They're being held in this place into the lake of fire. Uh, the great white throne judgment comes before that. When you read the book of Revelation, um, the books will come out. The names that are not written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. And that is their destiny. In conclusion here, Peter's readers would have taken great courage and comfort from his words. Yes, false teachers will come in and offer false teachings to lead them astray. Many will follow them, but their appeal diminishes greatly when you remember their end. There's much in this world in the way of ungodliness that can be tempting to the child of God. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Their end is destruction. We must live remembering wickedness results in God's judgment. Will you please turn in your Bible to Psalm 73? We'll conclude with this. Take heart to you who are in Christ. God will preserve you. He will deliver you and will bring you home to him. You can stand firm in the truth, rejecting anything that is counter to his word and his will for your life. So good. Psalm 73, please. The psalmist knew something about wrestling and maybe possibly being tempted by the way that the ungodly world seems to be thriving and prospering around him. And in Psalm 73, Asaph says, truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death. I mean, they just have easy deaths, easy lives. But their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is, is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. I mean, surely I've been doing this whole Christian stuff in vain. This, who cares about living a godly life? Look at how these people prosper. For all day long, I have been plagued and chastened every morning. 
If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, how do I make sense of all this? It was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. You see, this was really bothering Asaph. He looked around and he said, it's ungodly everywhere. How does this, why do I need to go to this church? Why do I need to get in the Bible? Why do I need to be praying? Why do I need to be giving? Why do I need to be sold out for Jesus Christ? I've got all this temptation to be like all these other people in the world, you know? And, And it looks like what they're doing is prospering. I mean, look at these people are getting rich, man. And here I am, I can't even, you know, I can't even afford health insurance or something like that. What good is it to be godly? He says, you know, I didn't know how to understand that until I showed up at church on Sunday morning. I'm kind of, you know, he went to the sanctuary. And then when I went in there, I was struck by something. I was reminded of the end that's coming for all these people that disregard God. And he says, then it, it all started to make sense. Surely, verse 18, you set them in slippery places. Boy, aren't they? You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed. Notice that word in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. He knows how to preserve the righteous. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord that I may declare all your works. 